Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up later in the program, Dr. Catherine Meeks and Pastor Nib Stroop on a new book they co-authored about journalists and activists, Ida B. Wells. Standing up and talking about lynching and fighting for the rights of black women and black men in the ways that she did in the era that she did it is, is phenomenal. That conversation a little later in the program. But first, the days are winding down for state lawmakers to try and get bills passed through both chambers. And of course, lawmakers will need to pass a budget for fiscal year 2021, which begins next week on July 1st. Now, the economic fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic devastated Georgia's revenue streams, which has lawmakers grappling with where to make cuts and what to fund. And speaking of the pandemic, Georgia has 65,928 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 2,648. And currently, there are 9,953 hospitalized. In other news, at this hour, funeral services are underway for Rayshard Brooks inside Ebenezer Baptist Church. And that's where we find Emily Green from the WAB Newsroom, who's standing by live. Emily, thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me on. Now, and it, it was expected a very large crowd was going to be gathering outside because it's a private funeral. Is that the case? Um, yes, I saw people coming in for the last half hour. To be to be honest, the media is not allowed inside of the church. And so I don't have a great estimation on how many people are inside. But for the last uh, hour, we have seen people enter the church. And we also know that, Emily, there is a big jumbotron, a big screen that's outside for those who have come to just partake in the ceremony from outside, correct? Right, that's correct. And then, go ahead. And so right now, there's a couple of tables with with people watching that jumbotron. And in fact, the service is just now about to start. Um, I think the weather, but for the weather, we might see more people. It's been sprinkling on and off throughout the day and threatening to thunderstorm. And Emily, there were some reports that Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms was set to attend. Did you see her? Do you know if that was the case? I have to be honest, Rose, I do not know if that's the case. I didn't see her personally, but it's possible she's inside the church. And right now, Emily, with so many people gathering as this service gets underway, uh, would you say the crowd is maybe in the hundreds outside? No, I wouldn't. Um, I would say there are about maybe 30 people outside of the church by the jumbotron. And again, I don't know if this has to do with the weather and also um, 
what what what's behind that but there's not as many people as one might expect all right from the wabe newsroom emily green live downtown at ebenezer baptist church outside of ebenezer baptist church where funeral services are underway for ray shard brooks and if we have time we'll check back in with emily a little bit later emily thank you so much for taking the time stay dry if you can thanks, thanks so much for having me and reporting from downtown Atlanta as those funeral services are underway for Rayshard Brooks, Emily Green reporting. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Earlier this month, a poll was released by Monmouth University. It found, quote, one third of voters, about 33 percent, say that race relations will be a major factor in their vote for president this year. And another 17 percent say it will be a minor factor. And about half, 49 percent, say it will not be a factor at all in their vote choice. Still, there are currently many issues tied to race relations in this country. It's everywhere. The news, this program, NPR other news outlets, social media, and streaming platforms. And perhaps, who knows, all the conversations that are taking place, well, hopefully, with the hope something comes out. Who knows? Joining me now on the program is Natasha Reed Rice. She's the founder of Fresh Rain for Life Ministries and is a minister for public life at All Saints Episcopal Church. In addition, an attorney with a focus on the intersection of race and housing and also speaks on racial reconciliation. Natasha Reed Rice, welcome to the program. Great. Thank you for having me. Glad to be with you. Before we get into that whole space of racial reconciliation, I just want to get your thoughts to reflect on the current racial climate of the nation, whether it's with the protests, whether it's with the election, whether it's with the voting. It just seems that's what we're all talking about right now. Yeah, and I think many of us are saying, well, it's about time that we're talking about it. I I think um, as you Uh, alluded in your introduction, this has been a topic that people run from, turn from, and deny, and yet is the reality for many of us who are not part of the white dominant culture, who are not, you know, part of the given narrative of success and belonging. And so finally, we're talking about this. Um, and, And it permeates every aspect of our lives, so we should be. You know, there's been much made that the reason why we're in this space where this narrative is all of a sudden around having conversations about race and racism due to George Floyd's death, which so many people obviously could see uh, due to cell phone video. Would you say that this is the is this a and I keep hearing this word and I'll get your thoughts on that, too. This reckoning that America has to come come to with its past and acknowledge its past as it relates to now connecting with George Floyd, because some will argue there have been a lot of there have been a lot of George Floyds throughout centuries in this nation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, um, continued condolences and prayers to the family of George Floyd and to the family of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and Rayshard Brooks, the names we know of. There's so many that are unnamed who have suffered um, at the hands, and right now we'll just say at the hands of racism, at the hands of a, a culture that that has um, responded to the color of their skin with violence. Um, as a mother of two black boys, mm-hmm. um, it's a very personal moment, right? I mean, I there have been moments where I've been afraid to allow my sons to go to school 
I mean, how ridiculous is that? Those moments that many black parents have to have where our conversation is not necessarily about sex. It's about what happens if the police pull you over while you're driving. Um, for many black families, that's our black, that's our bar mitzvah, right? That's the moment where our children, unfortunately, are passing into adulthood when they're pulled over by the cops. And so, yeah, this moment um, is not a new moment for us. Um, thankfully, it is now recorded, right? And others are able to see it and to realize that 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 George Floyd is a human being. He's not, you know, oftentimes when you see, when you hear of this story, it's a one-off to folks who don't want to deal with it as an overarching trend and a virus that has infected our nation. Um, you know, many like James Wallace has said, it's racism is America's original sin. And until we deal with that, we can really never be our country tis of thee. I want to shift for a moment and just stick with something that you just said. You said you're the mother of two black boys. You've had you've had these conversations. You 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 are still having conversations. What do you tell them and what questions do they have for you? Yeah, it's you know, it's it's tough because I, I want them to be safe. And so everything in me wants to tell them, be careful, don't turn here, don't go here, don't, you know, you kind of lead with all these don't do's. But at the same time, I want my boys to dream. I mean, we were at Ebenezer for 11 years. I want my boys to know that just like Dr. King, they can have a dream, right? And so it's a, it's, it's a tenuous balance between wanting them to be safe, but wanting them to also be free. Um, my family settled in Snellville, Georgia out of slavery. And we fortunately still own a lot of our homestead. And so about two weeks ago, I took my boys and I said, we just need to go. I need to put my feet on the same soil that my grandmother stood on when she raised my, my father in the shadow of Stone Mountain, in the shadow of the KKK headquarters. Because even in that moment, she had to give my dad hope and had to instill in him the ability to dream. And I think back as I think about my grandmother and my big mama and those folks, generations of black mothers have had to find a way to give our black babies hope in the midst of a terrorism that has been endorsed by the federal government, by state governments, by local governments in a country that truly lived in an apartheid regime. But we just haven't always called it as such. And in the midst of that, giving them that hope. Which leads me to my next question, because and I've, I've heard people say this. Why is a conversation about racism so hard and through your lens for whom? Yeah. Um, well, Rose, you know this story about me, but it's interesting because it's a very personal one for me. My um, mother is a white woman from Minnesota who in 1968 did participated in an exchange program at Spelman College where 10 white women came to Spelman in 1968 and 19 black women from Spelman went up to Minnesota um, in that exchange program. And my mother met my father, they married. Um, I was born in the 70s in Atlanta while she was pregnant. They were held at gunpoint by a white man who pointed the gun at her belly and said, I don't know what's in there, but it can't come out. Um, and in that moment, you know, my mother was bold and brave in those early age, those early years. But when they divorced, my mother couldn't deal with the race issue and left. And so I was raised by a single black man. And I often say it's interesting when I look at that in my personal context, I realize this race thing is is difficult for a lot of folks. Um, when you don't have to live in it, in and out of it every day, it becomes a conversation for you. 
it becomes something, and that's great. That's that's an aspect of privilege, right? You can determine when and where you enter in this conversation when it's convenient for you. And I think for so many um, white Americans and actually truly beyond the border of America, this conversation on race is difficult because it requires introspection. It requires folks to come to deal with the truth of the myths that have that have elevated them because of their skin color, the myths that have given them the rationalization for that elevation because of their skin color. And when you begin to come to come come face to face with that reality, I think it, it stirs up all kinds of things. So conversations on white privilege, for instance, for a lot of the folks that I have worked with in this space, it stirs up guilt for them. I mean, and their their constant refrain I get when I know that I'm that they're ready to go into conversation is, why? How do I have privilege? I wasn't born rich. Mm-hmm. I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth, you know. And the conversation, the response is, perhaps you were not, but the struggle that you've had has not been as a result of the color of your skin, right? So the conversation on race, I think, calls up a lot of truth that folks are not willing to deal with or confront well let's dissect that um for our listeners i know because i get emails from them all the time and and have been asked to talk about this in in dissecting white privilege ideology and its importance and difference than white guilt Mm -hmm. and and the difference between the two you see a difference or do you see a difference between the two is there one well well, i think they're related Mm -hmm. um i I think that just dealing with white privilege initially, you know, there, there are many different ways to define it. Um, one such one I'd like to offer today is, you know, one of the aspects of white privilege is the, that you are assumed to belong. You have an assumption of success. You have an assumption of authority and you have an assumption of entry. Like you have the right to be in the spaces you inhabit. I can't tell you how many folks, whether they have a PhD or they're um, working at the bottom of the social structure. I mean, because you have to deal with the issue of class as well. But the questions, you know, how many times was my father questioned in our neighborhood and asked for identification to be to ride his bike on the streets of our neighborhood? You know, I was followed home at the age of 10 by a white man who wanted me to prove that I lived in the neighborhood. So those are those are the assumptions that we do not have because we do not have white skin. The other issue with white privilege that I find fascinating, there are a lot of words that are coming out now, Rose, that folks haven't who haven't tuned into the conversation on race are hearing, you know, implicit bias, mm-hmm. um, unconscious bias, uh, the conversation of microaggressions. And uh, the more I think about that, I'm like, those are euphemisms. You know, white privilege, even when it's being corrected, has a euphemistic correction. The notion of implicit bias and unconscious bias is a euphemism because it doesn't point the finger at the owner of the bias. Mm-hmm. It allows you to be biased and to the excuse you have is, oh, I didn't even realize that I was biased. <laughs> I didn't even realize that I was, I was, I was supporting a racist system, you know. Um, white guilt is often the response to the acknowledgement of that privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a real emotion. And what I continue to encourage my my friends, my dear friends, yes, I have white friends, right? And my my colleagues in this space is that, okay, feel the guilt, but don't get stuck there because we need to do the work. You know, if if you cry because you feel so guilty, keep crying, but you need to keep walking. 
If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Natasha Reed Rice, a minister lawyer, and also she does a lot of work at the intersection of race and housing and also social justice work as well as racial racial reconciliation. I received an email from a gentleman, call him Tim. He said it's okay to mention his first name. He wanted to know, Rose, I'm a white, he said, I'm a white guy. What can I do? I feel like whenever I offer my voice, I get shut down. What can I do? What's your response to for Tim? Keep trying and try and try again. Do exactly what you're doing. Um, you know, Tim and so many others, they'll don't give up on this conversation. You're gonna be in awkward moments, but go forward. I have a good friend of mine. She's like, I'm your awkward ally. I'm like, yes, be awkward all you want. You're not gonna always get it right. You're not gonna say the right things all the time, but you can't stop trying to have the conversation and trying to push. So what I often say is that though has to translate, push for true systemic shifts and changes, get involved in policy conversations, get involved in your local conversation, your community about who's making the decisions about policing protocols, Mm -hmm. who's making budget decisions about where money is directed in your city and in your state, get involved in those conversations begin to get invest, become invested in your community. Um, and to those of my folks that are even in this, this space of the faith-based space, understand that this is really a conversation about neighboring. You know, we're, we're instructed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Start loving your neighbor as yourselves. Like when this, when when the George Floyd murder occurred, when Ahmaud Arbery, I got so many calls and emails from um, several of my white friends. Like, what do I do? I'm like, do the same thing you do if your son was murdered on the street. What would you do? How would you respond if your daughter was the one who was killed while sleeping in her bed? Like, begin to 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 influence your circles of influences begin to say to folks what's not tolerable at the thanksgiving dinner table you know what that's how you guys have always talked about african americans or latinos or eight no more not at my dinner table not in my house not in my space we have got to now begin to break the barriers that have separated us from seeing people as human beings this conversation of race is a soul conversation mm-hmm. so it, it, and you know and it mm-hmm. no go ahead finish it really enters in, you know, I love having these conversations in the faith space because I'm like, you say you believe, let me see how you put action to your faith because this is a spiritual formation opportunity for us. You know, dealing with the issue of race in this country because it is so ingrained in the way in which we live. A lot of my uh, white colleagues who do this work in the equity space say, if you are not consciously and intentionally countering white dominance and racism in this country on a daily basis, you are merely benefiting from it and becoming complicit in it. So it's a hygienic exercise. You get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you wash your face. In that, you've got to do the same thing every day. Be aware of where your biases are and cast them down. Be aware of how, who you favor and why you favor them, who you call successful and why you call them successful. Begin to counter your own mindset with respect to this. So if we're talking about first with acknowledgement, and then some will say listening, and then you want to get into actionable outcomes, but also there's a piece in there, that reconciliation piece. What does that look like? Mm. How? What's the diagram of that? Yeah, I, I think... Um, 
That's a great question. Um, and so when we're dealing with racial reconciliation, it's almost like you also, as, as a player in the reconciling moment, you've got to acknowledge where you are. Where are you on this spectrum? As if, if we had a spectrum that was taking us from overt racist to active ally, mm -hmm. where are you on that spectrum? Most people would never say they're overtly racist. You know, it's, it's I think of Robin DiAngelo's book, which is a hit now, White Fragility. Most mm -hmm. people will never even actually acknowledge their that they're that they're racist or they play into the racist scheme. Um, but you've got to truly acknowledge where you are on that spectrum and begin working your way towards being an authentic ally in this space. Uh, reconciliation ultimately deals with truth and acknowledging that truth and being willing to act once you acknowledge the truth. It's, you know, uh, South Africa, right? Their mm -hmm. example of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We've never had that in this country. So there are good components of a good dialogue about race and racism? Are there bad components? I guess this is a part of the, the segment where I say, what should you not do or what should not be brought into the conversation? Because often mm. I'll hear people say, I had nothing to do with this. I had nothing to do with slavery. I had nothing to do with what Christopher Columbus. I've had people say that to me. I, I had nothing to do with that. So why am I being attacked? Which... Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why are you bring that to the conversation? But I, I'll let you take that. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, that's actually a great question. So um, don't come with your mind already made up and your defenses in place. Because if you are, then you really aren't serious about reconciliation. Um, don't come with an attempt to let everyone else know that you're not racist. Right. Like, I don't need to have a conversation with you where the entire time you defend um, your actions and your thoughts and then tell me that you weren't responsible for Christopher Columbus. That's fine. You're benefiting from it. You're benefiting from the white myth like Jane Elliott, one of my great um, a, a, who I think is a great teacher in this space. She said, if you are white in this country and you're you grew up and you're not racist, it's a miracle. Because when you look back at the educational system, it has been edited so that as a white person, a white child growing up in our traditional American curriculum, you believe that you created the world. You believe that you discovered America. You believe that every great inventor was looked just like you, right? And so you've got to be willing to come into these conversations with an open mind, realizing that, that, that you may have built your identity on some myths mm -hmm. that need to be broken down and opened up. So, Natasha, with folks like you, and we're going to hear from uh, Dr. Catherine Meeks in just a moment, but with the work that you all do in this space, what is your guideline? What is your template for this? Where does it? Where do you draw um, it from? I don't think many of these conversations are new, but I do think that we've got to be able to have these conversations in a new context. So... Um, I think that part of what we do now is is we're we're being sensitive to context because I think that's important. You have to be very aware of the local groups in your area, of your statewide, of your national platform. We're entering into a national election, right? So we've got to keep that in mind. Not we don't have that every year. So um, understanding the short game and the long game understanding what we can do to shift and change perspectives in an interpersonal context, and then understanding what our strategic plan is to dismantle systemic racism, right? So I like 
the conversation on racial reconciliation. It's essential. We've got to shift and shift in a spiritual formation component, a soul changing place, a love changing place. But we've also got to have racial justice where we, we work to dismantle the systemic injustices that have continued to, to make this system as powerful as it is. Looking at housing, how are, how, what are housing patterns? What caused those segregated patterns? Not law, I mean, not not choice, but law, mm -hmm. right? What are the ways in which that has that has played a part in the educational system, in our healthcare system? We're seeing those systemic inequities play themselves out now in this heightened moment of COVID-19. So the pre-existing conditions that are tied to racism and inequity and systemic injustices, those are coming out in the forefront with COVID. Their pre-existing conditions are not just diabetes and hypertension, but it's the conditions that caused that led to that, the environmental injustice um, that has led to that. The fact that we were always on the other side of the tracks, that was intentional. The wind, the blow, the, the, the patterns of the wind, the, 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 the polluted air, all of that, the polluted water, all of that has been a part of this complicit system that has really disadvantaged people of color and African-Americans in particular. And Rose, if I can say sure. just real quick on that point with this conversational race, it's a very nuanced conversation, right? So the way in which we go about these conversations with strategy, you know, there could be small group sessions, there's Zoom sessions now in the age of COVID. So I think I'm not I'm not running away from your question as much as I'm saying it's got to be very contextually driven mm -hmm. in the faith based context, really pulling on standards that we have there that we we adhere to and and uphold right in in the the housing space we've got to take into consideration all the data and the the, the aspects of housing that have that have implemented that system that has led to injustice through, for so many and finally natasha so many folks have said with all these tentacles tied to everything you just talked about and everything we've been talking about on this program since i've been the host it now is the time. I keep hearing now is the time. The movement is allowing these conversations to turn into actionable outcomes. And I heard someone say, so I won't take credit for it. Someone said, if we don't get this together now, then it'll never happen. What's your take mm -hmm. on that? So as much as I feel like this time is wrought with a lot of frustration and exhaustion and fear, the other side of that is I think it's also full of so much hope because I really believe we're witnessing the shift of will in this mm -hmm. country. And I do not believe we even see that sometimes in a lifetime. I believe we are in the moment where we are seeing a shifting of the will in boardrooms, in organizations, in policymaking. And I completely agree with you. We have got to take advantage of this moment. This is now the time push through legislation to get people elected, to get to encourage folks to run for office who haven't run for office. The shift of the wheel. If it's not a book title, it should be. I've just given you that for free. So just give me some credit when you write it. <laughs> <laughs> Natasha Reed yeah. Rice, founder of Fresh Rain for Life Ministries, and is a minister for public life at All Saints Episcopal Church. And we've been discussing racial reconciliation. Natasha, thank you so much for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for the great work you do in our community and the voice you provide. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF 
GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. You're on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Often folks within this industry, me for example, will cite a quote from those we feel set what we call the gold standards in terms of what it means to do this work. Sometimes I'll turn to Edward R. Murrow or Gwen Ifill, and most always journalist and activist Ida B. Wells. And the following quote is one we hear and see a lot. Quote, the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. If you're not familiar with Ida B. Wells, well, just keep listening. A new book from co-authors Dr. Catherine Meeks and the Reverend Nib Stroop share how and why they came together to write about Ida B. Wells and how Wells' work is a blueprint for achieving racial justice and equality in America. It's called Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells as Prophet for Our Time. Now, Dr. Meeks is a retired distinguished professor of sociocultural studies at Wesleyan College and currently the director of the Asblon Jones Center for Racial Healing. And Reverend Nip Stroop, retired pastor of Oakhurst Presbyterian Church and author of numerous articles and books. So when we spoke earlier this year, our conversation began with how the two came to meet and discovering they grew up in the same state, but with very different lived experiences. There was an organization here called The Open Door that offered hospitality to people who were living outside and to people who were in prison. And we they had a Sunday afternoon worship there. And Nibs and I both would sometimes be there as the preacher. And that's how we met at the open door. And after a series of being there and, and just kind of having casual conversation, we found out that we were both interested in Ida B. Wells and that we had grown up in Arkansas which is amazing that most of the time when I mention Arkansas, people don't know what state I'm talking about. (laughs) So it was really nice to find somebody who lived just about 30 miles from where I lived. And, you know, that was a a fascinating thing. And then we got to talking about Ida B. Wells and how much we loved her. And Nibs had wanted to write about her but thought he needed to have an African-American person as an accompany uh, uh, for that. And after a couple of years, I thought, I got to quit talking about this and do it or else, you know, I'm just going to be wasting time. So that's how that's how this all came about. Now, you call him Nibs. I'm going to call him Reverend. Okay. So, <laughs> Reverend, <laughs> Reverend, fine. I'm going to call you Reverend. All right. So when you all decided to come together and, and write this book, did it just seem very natural? Well, it did. I, I I first met Catherine in the pages of Sojourners magazine a long time ago when she was writing for them. So I was kind of awed to meet her at the open door. Uh, and uh, as she said, we talked for a while and uh, I was really interested in Ida Wells and she was too. I, Catherine's much busier than I am. So I had to really talk her into doing the time. She wanted to do it, but taking the time to do it. But uh, yeah, as we worked together, we both brought... Um, the sense that this was a very powerful woman who is being recovered now, for which we're grateful, but who had been largely forgotten. But 
uh, we were we 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 rolled right along. It didn't take long to do the manuscript, which was good. And Catherine's publisher was interested in doing it because her books had sold so well for them. So uh, it went very smoothly from my point of view. Dr. Mix, you have cited that there's always been sort of an innate connection, if I could paraphrase how you put it, an innate connection you feel with Ida B. Wells in, in, in her life, in her, in, in her journey, in everything that she did. Yes, I started uh, teaching her when I was still a, a full-time professor in, at Wesleyan College in Macon, Georgia, and I identified with her in, in many ways, just the, the courage, the... the um, inability to ever let herself say yes to oppression. And and then the, uh, one day I came into class and my students said to me, Dr. Meeks, do you, we think that, that you are so much like Ida B. Wells. And I almost passed out mm. because I didn't <laughs> know that they had any sense about that. And so, uh, and now as I think back over my work with lynching and the work that I'm doing with, with, with trying to remember those folks who've been lynched in in our midst, I really feel sometimes as if I'm channeling some of that energy that, that she had, which is a wonderful thing. I, I just think that she's um, a, a most magnificent person, but magnificent because she kept on saying yes to invitations to stand up and do what she was put on the earth to do. Reverend Stroop, what about you? What is it about Ida B. Wells that's a connection for you? Well, I grew up in uh, segregated Arkansas, both Catherine and I did, in worlds apart. But I grew up in white supremacy, and I was taught that by really uh, decent white people. And so they loved me. I loved them. They also taught me that I was superior as a white man and as a white person. Uh, I had many experiences that began to change that, and Ida Wells was one of those. When we came to Oakhurst, my co-pastor, my spouse, and I, Caroline Leach, we started preaching on Black History Month and preached on a witness every Sunday in February and other times also. But in that journey, I discovered Ida Wells, and I was really amazed that, uh, I guess it's my white male arrogance, that I had never heard of her because I'd educated myself a lot. Uh, the other part was um, she grew up in Marshall County, which is where all my forebears are from. So I think she and my great-great-grandmother were probably contemporaries. Uh, they didn't know one another like Catherine and I didn't know one another. Uh, and she was short and powerful like my mother was. So all of those connections made me think, uh, who is this person? I just really want to get to know more about her. I wanted to do something on her. Oakhurst is a multiracial church, and so some of our African-American women, as I began to talk about it, as Catherine mentioned earlier, said, well, you cannot write this as a white man. You don't understand Ida Wells. You may have some stuff, but you've got to get some other folks, an African-American and an African-American woman at best, uh, to uh, help you on this. You won't get it if you just do it by yourself. So I, I appreciate that push, and I'm glad Catherine was willing to take this journey on it. I want to get into a term that you all introduced the reader to very early on in the book, and I'd like for you to def define it for our listeners. It's neo-slavery, and you use that, you will, well, they'll come across that word a lot. Uh, Dr. Meeks, define well, that for our listeners. Well, you know, Brian Stevenson said, uh, the, the founder of Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama, mm -hmm. said slavery never ended, it just evolved. And I think that that's really the truth. And so the slavery just keeps on re-presenting um, itself. You know, it's a new iteration, but it's the same energy system. So we, uh, that's kind of the, the um, 
the notion behind looking at that, looking at it that way. That's that now what we have in the 21st century is a version of slavery. It's not the same as people being held in chains somewhere, you know, and, and kidnapped from their homes and all of that. But the economic and political situations that we find ourselves in as black and brown people is equivalent to slavery. And and the people that are living at the bottom are enslaved in many ways. And, and, and so, you know, it's important not to get so comfortable thinking that slavery is over because we don't see people uh, with shackles on their feet. And, 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 of course, the people that we have in prison, which is another version of how we re-enslaved people, they literally do have shackles on them from time to time. So mm-hmm. those, many things have changed. Many things are not much different, Mm -hmm. and it's real important to keep that perspective. The voice you hear is Dr. Catherine Meeks. I'm also joined by Nib Stroop. They are the co-authors of Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells as Prophet for Our Time. And Reverend, I'll let you pick this up because you all talk about a very important man here, Tom Moss. Tell our listeners Mm -hmm. who he was and what happened to him because it's a what happened to him is a turning point in the life of Ida B. Wells and what she would go on to do for a long time. Yes, uh, uh, as as white supremacy reasserted itself in the South uh, after the Civil War, um, one of the uh, ways we did it was to use lynching and terrorism, and lynching was a tool of that. Uh, the ideology behind our using it was that black men were uh, raping white women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how many people, how many black people really believe that, but enough believed it. And whether they believed it or not, they, were the, they had great fear of being assaulted by white folk. Uh, Ida Wells was, was, had had already incidents with the white power system. She had refused to get off a train in 1884 and was kicked off um, uh, and sued in court. So she was getting ready, uh, but, and she had moved to Memphis and was... Uh, owned part of a newspaper there through her Baptist church. She was the godmother to Tom Moss's children who, uh, along with two other African-American men, ran a grocery store in a black neighborhood uh, right across the street from a grocery store run by a white person. So the white person warned the black men not to not to uh, cut into his profits, and they said that, you know, this is America, we're, we're capitalists, we're running our business, whoever runs the business best will get the most profits. Uh, but the white man would not take that, so he had some of his men open fire on the store, uh, and some of the uh, black men in the store uh, returned the fire. Um, and many black men were arrested. Uh, three men, including Tom Moss, were taken out and lynched. And Ida Wells just was totally shocked. Um, uh, so she said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell the truth on this. I'm not going to let the myth of, of black men doing things uh, be the reason. So she made a study of all the lynchings that had taken place over the last couple of years using the white newspaper accounts. This is where she began her investigative reporting. And she released a kind of incendiary report in 1892 saying that the reason for all of these lynchings was not uh, black men's uh, desire for white women, Mm -hmm. but white people's desire to repress and terrorize African-Americans. As a result, the people in Memphis blew up her offices, and she was exiled from the South for almost 30 years. But it began her trail of a really fierce commitment to tell the truth about lynching and try to end it if she could, but she was going to tell the truth. 
Dr. Bix, I want to bring you back into the conversation because mm-hmm. I want our listeners to also understand how important faith was to Ida B. Wells and in the work that she did. Well, there would be no way on earth that you could do what she did if you didn't believe in something bigger than yourself and bigger than just, you know, what you can see and taste and 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 feel. So to have um, a connection with um, God and with spirituality in a way that encourages you and gives you courage was absolutely necessary. And even though I've spent a lot of time reading her uh, diary and other things, she doesn't have a whole lot to say about all that, but it's clear mm-hmm. that that there's a deep faith in her life and a thread that keeps pushing her forward. And having the, I mean, just to think about being willing to be out in this world, standing up and talking about lynching and fighting for the rights of black women and black men in the ways that she did in the era that she did it is is phenomenal and i have a picture of her on my wall and every day when i walk mm-hmm. in my office i look at her and sojourner truth and harriet tubman and fannie lou hamer and my mother and mary mcleod bethune they're all mm-hmm. on my wall and and i and they all say to me don't don't complain and don't consider giving up because that's what Faith makes you do. It makes you never be willing to say no as long as you're um, doing the things you were put on the earth to do. And it's part of that ideology that you all are connecting Wells' work is what you call a blueprint for achieving racial justice and equality in America. And I've had many conversations about that, so it's not (laughs) easier said than done. But this is also part of what is in this book. And also, it's also like a workbook, too, because you all ask mm-hmm. questions of the reader right. for, re- for reflection. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why was that important to add that? Well, for one thing, I travel all over the country doing this uh, racial healing work, and people are always wanting to know what kinds of tools are there and how do they start a conversation about race. And so for this book and the other book that I wrote, Living into God's Dream, uh, there's questions. It's set up to be a study, uh, a book that you can study, because we wanted to contribute to the conversation. We want to give people a, a, a model, a template that they can use for, you know, you can read the chapters and deal with the questions, and then perhaps your own questions will come uh, as, as you are engaged in that process. And then Nibs and I put a, one section in the book where we engage one another mm-hmm. around some things that we didn't agree about because we wanted to show that a black person and a white person can be friends and not have to agree with each other on everything, which is part of the problem that people have with why they can't have the conversation because they're always worried about ruffled feathers. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, if there's a, a bit of respect and people acting like adults, you should be able to talk about some hard things without always having to be on the exact same page. Reverend Stroop, I'll give you the last word to talk about that component of the book where you're asking questions of the reader for reflection. 
Well, we, we, as Catherine said, we wanted people to use this as a study book and have an example of, of a real live living person who lived through a lot of, of difficult things, but was a, tried to be a strong witness, made mistakes, but also had uh, great steps. Uh, so Catherine and I had several times, I remember man, bringing the manuscript, so I'll just tell one story uh, about Thomas Jefferson. And mm-hmm. I, I wanted to uh, sort of redeem Thomas Jefferson, but since he was the author of the Declaration of Independence and he had such a great contribution to the idea of equality. Uh, so in, par- in the a draft, I was trying to wrestle with him, and uh, I sent that draft to Catherine, and we got together, and she said, uh, Nibs, uh, Thomas Jefferson is not redeemable. He was, he was raping a black woman all during this time, so don't try to redeem him. So I, I still have that sense. I wish I could do it, but I'm hearing more and more Catherine's point. And so uh, that's the kind of thing, I mean, that we tried to model, that you can have those conversations. You don't have to kind of hold on. I've got to be right, but try to find the truth and go from there. The book is titled Passion. Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells as Prophet for Our Times. Co-author, Dr. Catherine Meeks and Reverend Nibs Stroop. Thank you both for coming in and taking the time. I really enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And you're listening to the Martin Luther King Senior Choir from Ebenezer Church as the funeral service for Rayshard Brooks is now underway. This is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. As we conclude today's program, a friend of Brooks, Ambria Mikulichik, spoke today at the service. She says Rashard Brooks used to work for her and her husband every summer in their construction company. Ray rode a bike to work in the rain on hot summer days in tough road conditions and was always the first to arrive. There was an instance where one of our guys' car broke down and he didn't have a ride. When Ray seen Josh walking home, he got off his bike. He pushed it and walked right alongside of Josh so he wasn't alone for a full two hours. You see, that's the type of man Ray was. Ray looked out for everyone. When a single mother next door to him was being physically abused, Ray gave the guy a taste of his own medicine and told him to never to come back, and he didn't because he knew what was best for him. He proceeded to look out for that single mom as well as her child. Ray had a significant impact not only on our team, but my clients. They affectionately called him legal aid because he knew the answers to everything. He was smart as a whip. There was never a task too great or too small for Ray. He was helpful almost to a fault. He never had a bad day. He radiated such a bright light that regardless of the cowardly act that took his life, his light will never be dimmed. He will continue to shine so bright, even in his absence. I believe through Ray's death, we will finally have the tough, hard, long overdue conversations about race and what it means to be black in America. I believe through Ray's death, we will finally have the type of police reform for black and brown people that includes compassion, grace, mercy, understanding, instead of fear, judgment, bias, and the automatic presumption of guilt. I believe through Ray's death, our daughters and sons' lives will be spared. They will no longer have to suffer the same fate as Ahmaud Arbery, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and the countless others before them. I believe there will finally come a day where we no longer have the dreaded police talk with our brown babies. 
Through Ray's death, we will live in a world we are no longer afraid of police, but we come to know them as guardians, protectors, and peacemakers of our communities. His life will not be in vain. Ray's life will forever be a beacon of hope, change, love, resilience, living life to the full fullest, elevating those around you, displaying agape love, and that's the love that is in its highest form. Ray's bright light will forever change the world. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer for today was Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights. And yes, you can listen to us through your favorite podcast player. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.